Hello, 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 and welcome to another episode of Data Futurology. My name is Felipe Flores. I am your host. Thank you so much for tuning in again. This week, we have a special type of episode in our partnership with Data Science Melbourne Meetup Group, which is now the second largest data science meetup group in the world. We have started to record the meetup presentations, and today's episode is one of those presentations. The topic is is on leveraging machine learning and NLP for conversational AI. We have some great presenters and the topic was very popular on the evening. Here's the presentation. You'll recognize what Prashant is one of the presenters. We had him as a guest on episode number 64 and to date, it's one of the most popular episodes. So it's great to hear him cover some of the more technical sides. I hope you enjoy the episode. Hi everyone, my name's Lawrence Cavan and I'm from RMIT actually and we're really happy to host you guys in this event. Before I hand over to start the proceedings, I just want to acknowledge on behalf of RMIT and all of us here, the people of the Woiwurrung and Boomerang language groups of the Eastern Kulin Nations on whose unceded lands we conduct our business, all the business of the university, including this event, and we respectfully acknowledge their ancestors and elders past and present, and we also acknowledge the traditional custodians and their ancestors of the lands and waters across Australia where we conduct all our business. So welcome to everybody. Do thank our sponsors, especially, of course, that one, and a couple of interesting talks. We're really happy to sit in on them. Thank you. I introduce you, mate. Oh, my yes. goodness. Of course. Of course. <laughs> yes, actually. Hi, welcome. Welcome. My name is Felipe. Um, I'm one of the co-organizers here. I have to say, like, Phil does all of the hard work. And then there's two other co-organizers that we just, like, get some of the recognition. But we do extremely, extremely little. Thank you so much for being here today. We got amazing, amazing talks. Uh, definitely thank you to all the sponsors. One of the other hats that I wear is I do this podcast called Data Futurology. And I interview senior leaders in our space and publish them once a week. The idea is to get their lessons and pass them on to upcoming data science, data scientists such as yourself. So hopefully you... How many people listen to the podcast? Just sort of... Ah, thanks. Thanks, guys. Ah, that's great. Thank you very much. We had a really popular episode with our first speaker coming up. And uh, I can tell you that we actually just recorded the episode with Nick Ryan, our second speaker. So that'll be coming out in a couple months, probably. So without further ado, I have a ton of respect for this man that you're about to hear from. And um, he's been in the country for just over a year, like a year and a month. And it's great to have him on the meetup. So uh, please welcome. Mr. Prashant. Thank you, Felipe, for that very nice introduction. I almost couldn't recognize myself <laughs> when you said that. So when Phil invited me and Romina and I to present over here, I had only two demands. I said, we have to do it at RMIT. So that was one. And the other was, I need to do it with a co-presenter who's far cooler than I am or somebody who's cooler than I am. So I'm not as cool as Nick Ryan over here. He surfs while doing data science on a laptop with a GPU in the other hand. And also, from what I've heard, legend also does it while sipping pina coladas on the beach in Brissy. <laughs> so, not uh, as cool as Nick here, not as smart as Romina, but you will all recognize I'm certainly a good-looking fellow. Today's uh, conversation is... I'm joined today by my colleague and uh, partner in crime, Romina Sharifpur. So we both work at Deloitte Consulting in the analytics and AI 
practice. And what we're going to talk about today is leveraging machine learning and natural language processing for conversational AI. So what are some of the applications of natural language processing in industry, right? So typical ones are searching documents to do things such as know your customer and regulatory and compliance requirements, for example, trying to look at large text or even speech and try to understand what words. And we'll talk a little more about that, that people are using. Also, to drive decision advisors and workflows. And this is actually one of the very interesting things where the whole chatbot products are going in terms of not just serving as a virtual assistant or a bot in order to carry out a conversation, but also more importantly, to be able to take actions on workflows. So there are companies out there that are taking the advantage of things like Slack and Facebook and so on and so forth to actually do, for example, an end-to-end onboarding process for a new employee from start to finish. And it's a very exciting frontier that combines various things, natural language understanding and generation, which we'll also talk about. Call center analytics is one of the most obvious examples of what we call conversational AI. And then there's also things like language translation, internationalization, and customer service, especially in multicultural society that we live in here in Melbourne and Australia. There's also the customer experience. So there's the experience aspect of it, which is really more of a transactional view of the world. And then there's the analytics we do to make sure that experience is positive and that makes people want to come back and continue the conversation and make sure that the handoffs that take place between machine and human are as smooth as possible and the experience is of the highest. And of course, we can't measure the experience unless you do analytics. Voice analytics is huge frontier. In past life, before coming here, there was some work that I did where we were actually identifying whether somebody had depression or not with a remarkable high percentage of accuracy just based on the conversations they were having and then suggest different courses and actions that they could take. And it's, I think, one of the things that we will see more of. Uh, We are doing quite a bit of that even at uh, Deloitte right now, but it's I think the opportunities will only increase. And then there's, of course, social sentiment. So when we take a look at NLP, right, I'm sure, again, all of you are familiar with this. Otherwise, you wouldn't be here. But just to remind myself, because I forget what these things mean most of the time. What is NLP really? It's a subfield of artificial intelligence that attempts to bring computers closer to the human understanding of language. And if you actually think about it, if you look at the history of computing in the last 40 to 50 years, forget the recent advances around machine learning, for example. Even if you take a look at the history of computing, it has typically been us humans creating algorithms, feeding data into it, and getting outputs out of it. And then we have been doing a lot around structured data with uh, ML and deep learning, etc. But the language, language is immensely difficult. My seven-year-old tells me that she doesn't understand me half the time. So it's very difficult for humans to understand humans. So when we ask computers to do NLP, we are actually asking them to do something that is really the holy grail of computing. Understand human language and also be able to act in a way, frankly, that passes the Turing test 100% of the time, or at least that's the goal, that you can't, a human can't make out the difference whether the bot is human or not. How do we do it? 
right? So some of the things that we do with NLP are, for example, look at topic modeling. We'll go into more detail on this. Entity extraction, really detecting nouns in the industrial context, looking at products, people, organizations, etc. Named entities or unnamed entity recognition. Intent analysis, understanding a person's intent based on recognizing the verbs. Sentiment analysis, which is how positive, negative, for example, they are, like in a product review. Language translation that we talked about, voice to text and text to voice. Smart speakers, the likes of Alexa and Siri. And the key thing to understand, of course, is true NLP, especially in a conversational setting, is a combination of two things. It's a combination of natural language understanding, understanding the natural language to <laughs> figure out these various things on the top. And then that's a typo. Um, obviously, the topic model didn't work in this case. That should have said NLG, natural language generation, because the point of NLP, the point of understanding language is to then use a bot to be able to continue a conversation on its own and not then put a human into the process. The human's participation should be limited. So NLP is equal to NLU plus NLG for those of you who have been forced to come here for RMIT credit. So what are the objectives that we did over here? So we, we did this with a leading organization here in Melbourne. Can't name them because I love my job. But we looked at a few things. We looked at NLP and machine learning as a way to accurately understand the nature of customer requests and both chatbot and live agent responses. So we did it for two different channels. One was the chatbot, the other was the live agent. And then used that to drive actions that frankly improved the customer experience. So optimizing the conversational channels. We were also very keenly focused on on improving the capabilities. And the key thing over here was uplifting the human capabilities. So this was not just about the machines themselves, but the human to do their job. If we don't make it easier for a human to do their job using NLP, then we really have to ask ourselves, what the heck are we doing? Improving the quality, timeliness, and accessibility of conversational data, and then providing recommendations to deploy it at scale. And then finally, understanding the business processes and the opportunities where NLP could be used to automate analytics. And this is something that we are particularly proud about because we didn't do this as a science experiment. Romina will tell you later that part of it is you have to experiment. So we started it as a science experiment, but you can't just end it as a science experiment. You got to be able to take that and put it in production. Phil has been talking a lot about that on LinkedIn of late, follow him. But you got to be able to put it in production so that somebody can use it. What we are particularly proud of is the fact that we were able to automate the analytics pipeline so that you could actually go from NLP to insights using that process. And if you can't generate those insights, if you can't deliver impactful visuals, if you can't use those insights to improve the chatbot's performance or the behavior that the humans have with that bot or that live agent, then frankly speaking, we haven't answered the whole question. So that was really what we did over here. Again, I've been told that if I don't finish on time, I won't be invited for beer after this. So I have to keep moving. Topic modeling, grouping terms in a word cloud. And the reason we did that was really growing the bot response taxonomy for more accurate responses. And more importantly, also sparking new content development. So what does that mean? It means helping refine the script, the Q&A script that the live agent uses and the chatbot uses. And we did this in a true multi-cloud environment because the bot itself was running in Google Cloud. The entire machine learning and the analytics pipeline was done in AWS. And the results were fed back into Google Cloud. So if somebody tells you that multi-cloud doesn't work, ask them to come and 
you know, talk to us because we'll show them how it worked. It works very well, actually. Intent identity analysis, and really, it's really looking at nouns and verbs. Capturing and targeting specific types of inquiries and conversations to bring about necessary improvements. And also, more importantly, we use this quite a bit to measure conversational accuracy. Nothing is more frustrating for a human than a bot that doesn't answer their questions. People don't engage with a chat bot because they are feeling bored. Well, I do it, but you know. Uh, people engage with a bot primarily because they want to get back to what they were doing. They, they don't want to continue this conversation with the bot at all odd times of the day. So our focus has to be to improve that conversational accuracy to as high an accuracy as possible so that one of two things happen. One, the user or the human at the other end who's interacting with the bot says, thanks. Well, the other thing we found out was humans hardly thank bots. I'm very depressed by that. But they do abuse bots. We'll come to that later. <laughs> uh, or the other thing we have to do is we have to do a handoff. If the bot is not able to answer a question successfully, it should be able to quickly say, I give up and move the conversation to a human with as smooth a transition as possible. And those are the two important things. So conversational accuracy was one of the huge things that we use the intents and entities for. And then sentiment analysis also plays into that, which is how happy, sad, or neutral are people around it. So it's a huge aspect of addressing customer satisfaction measurement and reporting. So the interesting thing that we did here was we decided to do this project using two pipelines. One was, as I mentioned earlier, an AWS pipeline using AWS's NLP services and machine learning tools and analytics tools. And there's a reason why we did it. So what we did there was loaded the conversational data in a raw form into S3, used Comprehend, put the results back in S3, then used that to load Athena into it so that we could query with SQL, and then finally built reports and scorecards and dashboards that could be populated automatically off of this. Romina will go into a little more detail, but the what, what we found really was even compared to last year, the AWS services have, are simply awesome. For example, the level, and I, I don't work for AWS, so but they are able to take dirty data as it exists. And we got our first topic modeling results out once we fed it in, what, Romina, 15 minutes, 20 minutes? which is fantastic when you think about it. Now, there are some other considerations we have to think about, obviously. For example, the ability to do bigrams is not there. So if you want to attach two words, you can't do that easily. What you see is what you get. In other words, once you feed the data, it's pretty much an API-like approach. You feed the data, you get the results. You don't have too much flexibility in doing much with it. The other thing is that you have limited ability to improve the accuracy if you don't like the accuracy. But at the same time, it's extremely helpful. If you're trying to figure out, for example, you're a part of an enterprise and you've got 500 web pages and you're trying to decide very quickly where you want a virtual assistant and where you want a human agent, which is actually a very, very popular use case in industry, then something like this gives you results literally in minutes as opposed to days or weeks. So, and I'm sure AWS will only get better because they are training this on the Amazon product descriptions and review. That's the database they are using. So I'm sure it will only get better over time. No pressure for anybody who works for AWS in this room over here. But the reality is, one point I would say is do not ignore the cloud-based machine learning services, whether they are AWS or GCP or Azure 
or anything else, simply because they provide certain advantages that are obvious. The other thing we did was built a custom pipeline and for various reasons. To increase the flexibility that we had to improve the, for example, the ability to generate bigrams, to improve the accuracy, for example. And then also because everybody was talking about TensorFlow, we really wanted to try TensorFlow. Gave us decent results, 2 to 3% improvement. S3 again, data prep, which is actually something that we had to do more compared to like the out-of-the-box machine learning uh, NLP service. And then this actually saved our lives. Quit working on this, and once we finished the topic modeling, when we started getting into intents and entities, we realized that we'll have to label thousands of documents in order to be successful. And we saw initially that the accuracy was really low. And what we saw was the number of documents that you labeled actually dramatically changed the accuracy. And so we started off with various methods, every data scientist's favorite tool, Excel. And then we found it was extremely time consuming and challenging. So we were really struggling with this. And then we decided to use Rasa NLU. Unfortunately, the product has been deprecated now. It has been replaced with something else. But that saved us completely because we were able to very quickly label data at scale really, really fast and we could get anybody to do it. You didn't have to be an expert. You had to know how to use a mouse. And then the other thing it also allowed us to do is it allowed us to, it uses Spacey internally. So there's a Rasa NLU labeler, which we used. And then there's also a model generator. So we used both of those. And then we compared the results to what we did by hand to also see which one did better. And then we deployed all of this in SageMaker and did custom visualizations. Robina, would you like to speak to what you did with PyLDA this place? Yeah. So just recap a little bit on what passion mentioned. So the main goal was here, okay, we're gonna have this you know, amazing model in and what if we bring a lot of skills um, and actually do everything through a custom pipeline and we code everything within Python? And okay, what output are you gonna see? How better it is? And if you see actually improvements, what is it? Does it worth all the try? And does it actually worth it to sink that much resources into that? So I was more focused on the custom pipeline here. And uh, obviously the data you could load it in the street bucket, that's quite flexible in terms of, okay, I'm going to actually uh, run my Python once is polished up very quickly through the command line or I'm going to use the SageMaker which allows me to custom code. It's quite um, reasonably accessible in terms of you want to do whatever modeling you want to do in terms of a space, for example, complexity that sometimes you face a lot when you work with your local machine. Those are all the problems that actually you won't face when you use SageMaker. There are also some templates, pre-ready code for some of the machine learning algorithm, which you could actually utilize. So the data cleaning itself, we pandas and is one of the, I think, biggest libraries that you always use. NLTK is especially uh, helps you with a lot of uh, natural language processing, data cleaning and processing. So also for data cleaning, you can also use scikit-learn. Think about some of the functions that each of them have. Uh, scikit-learn sometimes, especially for the natural language processing, can simplify the data cleaning steps. For example, removing the stop words, removing punctuations, lower casing your um, text, as well as a limitization. So you can actually work with those. So we actually 
we utilize all those libraries. For the modeling specifically, Scikit-Learn actually has lots of algorithms, which I'm sure you use that one. And Spacey has a pre-built, quite actually ready off the shelf um, convolutional neural network that you could use, so uh, relatively fast to work with. We also use Keras, actually custom-built uh, neural networks, deep learning, to see how we compare to that Spacey. Let's say we tried sequential model as well as the convolutional neural networks. GenSim is specifically a library used for topic modeling. So we did topic modeling through NLTK. Also, we did it through GenSim. So you could actually see how the results would be different from either of them. The custom visualizations, uh, we did actually use, again, um, one of the packages we use is the LPYLDAWISH, which is specifically for visualization of the topic modeling. We also use other libraries that you could show the model output, like recall, you know, recall, uh, precision, as well as other metrics that is of your interest out of the models. I think it's self-explanatory, right? There's good data. <laughs> There is bad data, bad data is incomplete data, data that is not fit for purpose, and the most common data set of all is dirty data. So this is a real-life example, not from RMIT, <laughs> but some other university which I can't claim, where this is what the, the teachers say, and leave it so I want to emphasize how much work actually we had to put into data preparations and data cleaning. You send in a rubbish data, and I can also tell you that how much of improvements we could achieve by regularizations, uh, by actually looking how we could clean this data better, how we could label this to give us optimized actually answers, um, something that was driven from the context we were working for. So I give you some examples. And when you work with a huge amount of data, some of these tasks are actually hard. We looked at number of months of all these chatbots data. So let's say you have 70 months to work with. Some of the months could have been duplicate of the other months. So how could you detect those duplications and remove that out of the data? That was actually the work which you can simply ignore and move on with it. But it is very important earlier on. There were some incorrect faults. Uh, there were some really invalid data within the data comes in the columns. Imagine, so one column was the questions the person was asking. One column was the answer that the chatbot was giving. They were actually flipping between the columns. So some of the answers was mixed with the questions and vice versa. So how would you detect that? How would you know that the person who asked the question is not the answer that chatbot was giving you? So quite significant amount was actually put into that. And that is all due to the data explorations that you have to actually perform. And you find inconsistencies and you find areas that you say, OK, this is giving me a red flag. So before you go down the track of modeling, there's a lot of work that you would have to do. And then after all those, um, I'd say, putting all those months together, there are other considerations you could think, okay, the question and answer, what if a person is asking multiple questions back and forward and the chatbot is answering, how I'm gonna deal with that? Am I gonna treat that data and I'm gonna analyze it line by line per question and answer? Or am I going to look at every session, every conversation per person? So that was another important consideration. Am I going to only look at the answers? Am I looking only on the questions? So those are the areas that is very important to think from a problem solving point of view, not from really the algorithmic point of view. And that's something Otel unfortunately can't do for you. That's something you'll have to do. You have to clean and feed it even into Amazon Comprehend, which we did.
From there, you do the basic or fundamental NLP-based data cleaning, that is lower casing all the tokens, tokenization to start with, removing the punctuations, stop for the very significant amount of uh, custom stop force that we had to remove. You'd be surprised to see how many ways people can say hello, hi, hello with a hundred. Also, those are the things that it helps to clean the data better, although they wouldn't come up as a high frequency, but still you'll have to go you know, to that extreme to clean all those uh, inconsistencies from your data. Lemmatization is one of the interesting ones that what part of the sentence am I going to lemmatize? Am I going to only do the nouns? Am I going to only do the verbs or adjectives? So depending on that, scikit-learn as well as NLTK could give you different flexibility with that. And then from there, once you have a clean data, you start with feature engineering. Look at your context when you think of what am I going to answer and how rich the data is that I'm working with and what type of features perhaps would work better for me. So um, there are bag of work approaches in, in NLP normally as one of the major, normally they work well, they're simple. If you look at the word frequency, there are also word embedding which they are more advanced. Um, they work very well for the rich context, for the bigger type of, bigger size of the data. Again, we could try both of them and see which one would give you a better answer um, in here. Other considerations, think about n-gram models, embed them within your feature engineering. Think about membership card. So membership card is two words, but Amazon Comprehend, you wouldn't allow to define to look at two words together as like a membership card. So membership would come separately, card would come separately. Those are the things that the custom pipeline could easily allow you to improve and fix and capture actually all those insights out of it. So for the uh, intent classification in particular, we use both uh, the bag of word approach as well as the word embedding, the nature of data, the question and answers. We find out that the TFIDF approach was actually the best out of all the features that we tried. This is an example of uh, labeling with Rasa NLU. As Prashan mentioned, NLP task is a very interesting, I'd say, type of analytics, even when you go to an organization and deal with, with their data, because you never have the ground truth labels. Huge training data, but the data is coming without the labels. So the first day when I was on this project, I say, where are the labels? Do they have labels? Because I kept thinking, it's almost impossible for them to have a label for their data. So how those labels, how those ground truth labels are generated, and they have to be of a good quality. And that's because algorithms pretty much learn what you teach them. You teach them wrong, you teach them biased, they're going to give the same thing back to you. So if I show you, you wanted to do manually the um, entity as well as the intent labeling, you would really freak out because it comes out as a JSON format and it's hardly intensive in terms of label that how could you produce such output to feed into your algorithm. And it's not like you need one or two or 10, you need thousands of these training data. So how could you really cope with that? So you should not be afraid to actually explore what is around for you, what is solve your problem in the context. And a lot of them are free. There are actually versions of this, like Prodigy, for example, which they're not free, but they learn over time. The more training you label over the time, they actually learn, and your training data can get bigger and bigger and bigger. So, Prashant, this is... Yeah, I mean, I, I think we really put this slide together with lots of stuff so that you could agree that we did some really cool things over here. <laughs> so, I think we can go on to the next slide right away. Um, 
I think a lot of this, Romina, already covered, right? So the key methods over here, topic modeling, which we discussed, intent and entity, um, and then sentiment. So one of the things we did was we did the custom coding and using Comprehend and SageMaker was the overall environment that we deployed everything in. SageMaker is pretty amazing because when we were using Spacey and TensorFlow and stuff like that, we needed the ability to ramp up processing power and we could literally run the service for a couple of hours and then shut it down. So it was very cost effective rather than setting up GPUs and it's impossible to set up a GPU if time enough <laughs> the way approvals work in any organization. So that's where these things paid off. And I think uh, Romina already spoke about the pluses and minus sentiments. We did purely with Comprehend. We found excellent results. We didn't see a reason to do any custom coding on that as a result. And uh, what, what are the key takeaways from this is that Comprehend, for example, which is what we used over here. If you like this presentation enough and you tell Phil you want us back, we'll talk about other cloud services that offer similar functionalities. Comprehend was what we used here. We liked it. Very fast and efficient as we discussed. And we also talked about the drawback of the current limited ability to customize the solution. Very user-friendly, easily implementable, and you get an end-to-end -end very, very quickly. It dealt with dirty targetly than we ever imagined that it would. Did a fantastic job, actually, including the swear words. Custom coding obviously achieves similar or improved results in terms of accuracy and interpretability. And interpretability is important because, as we discussed earlier, Comprehend is like an API service. So you don't really know what's going on inside the box. So, okay, fine, in this case, it may not matter much. But if you're using it in a much more sensitive environment where you want to know how a certain decision came about, how a machine came up with a certain understanding, then you got to be able to trace that back. So the interpretability is certainly limited, but the trade-off, of course, is speed, right? Uh, and that's typically the case with any machine learning. You get the speed, accuracy, interpretability matrix is, you got to figure out where you want things. That's not just NLP, but any machine learning in general. Key advantage of a custom approach is to modify and adapt. SageMaker, we discussed, pretty solid, pretty good. Gave us access also to a lot of the open NLP libraries and so on and so forth out of the box, which allowed us to really not worry about going and getting approval from IT every time we wanted to run something. And then finally, uh, I think Romina pointed this. And if there is one takeaway from this, is it's not about how cool TensorFlow or Spacey or Jensen is. Is it is never underestimate the time and the effort it takes to do anything. Topic modeling, you can get away. Use LDA or PTM. It's fine, they're mostly unsupervised algos, get what you want. But if you want to do content and entities and sentiments, the real meat of stuff, then the accuracy and the success is going to be directly proportional to the amount of labeling that you do. Do you agree? Yeah, pretty much. We discussed a lot of this. Um, one of the important points that I wanted to mention, when first I got into the custom coding, many of us as data scientists, we think we have to beat up. Oh, sorry, yeah. We have to actually, we have this maybe back of our head that our custom code has to give us a lot better result than automated ML off the shelf. But once I started working with actually the AWS Comprehend, you start actually, you can start thinking out of the box. You can think, okay, well, this is there. 
how can I actually utilize it? And once we were going through this data labeling process, because we had to create a new taxonomy, pretty much the new labels, and you have actually nothing to guide you, but that AutoML AWS was a lifesaver because I could run different versions and different experiments with relatively a fast turnaround, and that would lead me to directions. Okay, what's the next step that I'm going to take? Which part of the data or which part of the labels I still think is not telling me what I have to see? There's bias. The accuracy is low. Where that lack of performance is coming from. So I actually use experimentations because if I wanted to sit and custom code every single bit, that was going to take me really a lot of time and resources that sometimes is wasted. But you can think out of the box, how can you utilize this AutoML in your advantage? And that's something which I didn't realize when I first started. But I kept thinking I have to beat the AWS models. Well, I was beating it. I'm not saying not, but I <laughs> really was... open about this <laughs> When I first suggested using the cloud-based machine learning services, I got a lot of grief from Romina. And then the fact that she called it a lifesaver right now, you all approve. So it matters to know actually when to use what tool. And I think it's a great tool and it has its own place. And think about organizations, if they don't have that resource or a skill available, it's amazing. They can just have minimum amount of skills and get them to at least guide them through some directions um, using AWS. So um, I think generating value out of this particular work, we could actually capture insights from the massive amount of chatbot data and drive informed analytics, analytics and insight back to the business. One of the important areas was the way they were doing things. And a lot of it, when I looked at it, without even they know it, the sampling was really biased. So they were thinking that their chatbot is actually giving about 70 something percent accuracy back. And I kept asking, so if you're having 70 or 80 percent accuracy, then what is the problem? I couldn't understand what the problem was. So make sure you understand what is it that is not working? What, what is the problem? Because often people are looking for the solutions and then find the question to answer that solution. That's not really the way it is. And I, different stakeholders, and we told them, okay, tell us what is it that you're doing? How are you assessing the accuracy of your chatbot? And that gave us a lot of insight into, okay, from the start, they're randomly selecting a bunch of um, conversations. Think about dominant categories that or dominant questions that people ask, and by chance chatbot is giving the right answer back. They're going to boost your accuracy a lot. But they had really no view of pair intent or pair classes of taxonomy, what type of accuracy they were seeing. So those are the things which is AutoML can't do for you. And as a data scientist, whether you use algorithm or you do custom code, those are the things which you have to be very careful with. And that's where the power of the data science, I think, comes from. And I think always you have to see the bigger picture. Think about the problem within the context. Talk to different people, learn how they're doing, you know, the same amount of work. You don't want to go to the stakeholder and say, this is the same thing you've done, but look, I've coded it in Python. That's not going to really help them because that's not what they want to see. You have to show that how the work that you're doing has fixed the problem, what was causing the problem, and how you can take that to the next level and improve moving forward. And obviously for the uh, stakeholder or for the business, there was the removal of quite significant amount of manual work by week. They were spending um, hours of hours 
few members within the team to do this analysis manually. And you can think human bias introduced to that different team member, how varied of the results you could see over time and how could you go back and compare, this is what I had, this is what I'm seeing today. No link, nothing to actually look back and see, okay, this is how far I've come. Anything you want to add here? That's really it, right? So the whole of machine learning, NLP, etc., is really to improve the human experience. It's not just to experiment and do cool stuff. Though, that helps. Uh, if it can't improve the human experience, if it can't improve the organizational experience, we really have to ask ourselves whether we have hit the mark. So that's what we were able to achieve with this. And we were able to prove it with data and evidence. And we were able to create new insights in a way that can actually change things. Obviously, because we can't show the client, each of those actually has a term. We have masters pretty much. So if in case you think, oh my God, this visual just doesn't look insightful, it's deliberate. Each of these things actually had labels attached to them. And the size of the circle indicates the frequency of the topic in the data set in question, which was hundreds of thousands of propositions, by the way. And uh, the top terms associated and then this was actually done with file Davis and it was an interactive. So you could actually hover over each of these and you could see on the right what was the frequency of the word and what words people were using in, with respect to that topic. This is an example of that the insight you can drive through data exploration. So I was looking at the labels we had created. Let's say we had seven or eight labels to look into, but then I was in a spot that I had to decide. I had to decide that I need more data because I could see some of the categories were performing really low. The sensitivity was really, really low in some of the classes. That can give you a signal, okay, maybe I'm my algorithm is suffering from a high variance. I have to go and get more data. And I started actually exploring the data a lot more. And I looked at the frequency of the words within each category. And then I'll, if you look at a little bit, this is small, but how rich each of those categories were in terms of vocabulary. We are human. Some questions we want to ask, there are less ways or there are fewer ways we can ask the same questions. But there are actually some areas that there are many, many ways or there are many, many vocabularies that people could use to ask the same question, although they fall in one class. That gave me actually a lot of insight in terms of where I'm going to collect more data, where I'm going to focus my actually efforts to go and generate more label for the training data. Give you the signal, maybe you have to modify the classes that you've created and you're working with. Maybe you're too general in the given uh, category. Maybe you have to make them a lot more specific. These are the things which I think give you actually leaps in terms of improvement when you're working with, with the data. Oh, oh yeah, I mean, uh, this actually is the result of us using Comprehend on the sentiments as we discussed, uh, positive, negative, neutral, were the three sentiments we looked at. And then the visualization that you see here was done in AWS QuickSight, where, and we were able to actually connect the whole pipeline. All of this was done in AWS. It was pretty nice, right? Um, <laughs> Obviously, this is a great number. The number of sessions increased, which means people liked interacting with the bot. The sentiments increased between November and December 2018 by 41%. 
and these other things over here, including a breakdown of sentiment by hour. Uh, don't let this happen to you. Uh, robots have a tendency to become self-aware and self-loathing, and then they start writing novels. <laughs> so some best practices over here very quickly. As we discussed, consider a hybrid approach. As we discussed here, cloud-based services, AutoML are here to stay. They're not here to take your jobs. In fact, it will make us more powerful. Think out of the box on how you can use it to your advantage, like the example Romina gave on using it to accelerate the custom coding and labeling efforts that we did. Keep the end in mind, keep the end in mind, keep the end in mind. Connect NLP and analytics to workflow. Uh, don't take data exploration for granted. Leverage open source, obviously, the data science and NLP community and products, as we did over here with RASA and AWS extensively. Speak your stakeholder language, put yourself in their seat. They are not data scientists for most part. And uh, Philippe writes, of course, a lot about this. If you, if you can't communicate it, be honest, most of your stakeholders don't care to who's whether you use Spacey or what they want to know is whether you're able to solve their problems. So it's a bit of humility and also self-awareness <laughs> that we need to develop. Like the visualization, actually, the stakeholders loved it because they could connect with it, they could interact with it, and that was something they could understand. But if I'm going to sit and tell them, look, this is how I did it, this is the feature I did, and so on and so forth, they would just show no interest in that. So you have to be really mindful of, you've done this great job, but how you're going to sell it into your stakeholder. I use the word sell because as a data scientist, lots of the time you have to sell your ideas. It's not as easy, especially the changing culture that we see in many organizations. There are people who do not still have any belly for faith. So that's something you have to be very mindful at the same time. So because you all have excellent vision from even at the end of the room, let you read the rest of it by yourself. You are self-explanatory. And the key thing is, uh, any questions, please feel free to contact me. I would have put Romina's email ID over here. But she's currently on maternity leave, <laughs> and she told me, Prashant, I do not, do not, do not want to answer <laughs> questions on my official email. So, but she'll give you better answers than I can. Thank you, Phil. Thank you for this opportunity. Hope you as the audience found this uh, convincing. If you did not find it convincing, and if you're confused, we were just coming here with like a 50% hope. Either convinced or confused. <laughs> so if you're in one of those categories, classes, so to speak, then we have succeeded in what we wanted to do. Hopefully the first and not the second. Happy to take a couple of questions, but again, I want to keep in mind, right, this is the most dangerous part in Melbourne right now. Between this and Nick Ryan. Okay, no. so, I, <laughs> so I, I don't want everybody's here to listen to Nick. No, he is no. the surfing data scientist. <laughs> don't forget. <laughs> Well, we'll, take a couple we'll do a couple of questions. Uh, put your hand up and I'll come with, uh, with the mic. Uh, thank you for a very nice presentation. Thanks. Just uh, some, uh, two questions. One is, um, uh, there are, for example, pre processing, you say, like, hi, hi, hi. That's of the mistyping. But uh, any, uh, just manually, you need or any packages uh, inviting you to, or, or any automated way you can do it? And second one is, uh, 
regarding topics uh, when you have a FDA visualization, mm -hmm. the topics uh, people choose your top words as a topic name. Uh, I think this is not the best way. Is there any way or you can do it in Python or some specific packages can give you the name of the topics or the name? Because it's very probably important for the uh, industry as well to know what's the topic name. But what yeah. does it mean? Yeah. So for the pre-processing, majority of the pre-processing was done in a Python. Even we cleaned the data into some level before we feed it into the AWS. So the custom pipeline as well as the AWS pipeline. We use NLTK package. We use Pandas majorly for concatenating all the data. For example, you're working with, we were working with columns. So which columns you use, which one you don't use. They were more used by Pandas. There were lots of regular expressions we had to remove. So those are the codes that you can generate out of the pandas again or the base code within the Python itself. For example, uh, in the answers the chatbot was giving, there were lots of hyperlinks, there were four numbers. The data comes to you sometimes anonymous. That means the information of the customers, their names, their, for example, payment information, it's all masked. So you see a bunch of nonsense characters within your text. Those are the things that you have to clean all. So again, we use the Python itself, the base code, to clean a lot of that. So majorly Pandas as well as NLTK as well as the Python itself, Python language itself. For your second question, topic modeling, you have to be aware that it's unsupervised uh, method. So we don't have a name for the topics to start with. So once the topics are emerged um, out of the um, LDA, we, we use the LDA actually uh, algorithm here. So you could, just like the clustering, you could decide, okay, how many topics I'm going to find in this corpus? And that comes also with experimentation. You can start with five topics and you look and see, okay, the topics look very, very general. So you want to go more specific. You increase the number of topics and so on and so forth, back and forward until you arrive to a number of topics which you think they are specific enough. And unfortunately, with the way unsupervised um, algorithms work, a lot of the work is based on your understanding of the data and what gives you the best uh, story out of the data that you're looking at. So the topics come as like you see, number one, number two, number three, four, up to whatever number you chose of the topics. And then you look at the tokens and the words within every topics and the frequency of appearing those tokens in a given topic. And then you think, oh, this one is talking about membership card. This one is talking about, for example, reward program. This one is talking about X and Y. And then you choose the name of the topics from there. So that's your effort as a data scientist that you'll have to look into and find the best match. I think uh, before we take the next question, I think Prashant has to run. Yeah, uh, only because I'm afraid somebody will ask a question which I don't know any answer to, but Romina. <laughs> Hi, uh, thank you for that interesting talk. So you talked about bag of words and TF idea, which you use for your feature generation. Now, yes. Usually bag of words and TF idea suffers from a sparsity of the feature space. What are the different ways that you would have applied in the industry for reducing that sparsity? There are a few ways you can tackle the sparsity. So there are some functions within the algorithms that it looks at uh, exactly how many times that 
term had to be repeated in a given document and that for in all the documents that you're looking at. So those are the things you can look into. Normally we remove the very high frequency words. Let's say you can say if this word has appeared in more than 70 or 80 percent of all the documents, get rid of it because it's something general. It's not going to explain anything in my modeling, so I'm going to get rid of it. On the other hand, there are some words which are used very infrequently. They only will add noise or sort of variance in, into your modeling exercise. So again, you can get rid of them. What percentage, what number, there is no rule, really a rule of thumb. You have to look into your uh, richness or sparsity of the vocab that you're working with. And from there you decide, okay, I'm going to maintain all the words because none of them looks to be frequently repeated and repeated. A lot of the, those problems actually are also fixed when you do the pre-processing and the cleaning. For example, when you remove the stop words, a lot of it will actually go away. When you define the custom stop words, that people use them a lot within the context, but they don't really add anything to the analytics, you can also get rid of them as well. So those are the way you can tackle that. Hi, so this project actually it was quite intensive um, in terms of the work that had to be done relatively very short time frame. So we had five weeks and the number of team members it was myself, hands-on people actually. So one more team member who was in charge of the custom pipeline. I was in charge, uh, sorry, I was in charge of the custom of the AWS pipeline. We brought someone in to help actually with the data labeling and that's it really. <laughs> and then Prashant, which I was overseeing obviously the entire project. For your labeling question, it was a difficult thing to do. And <laughs> it is really funny because sometimes you think you're a data scientist and you don't have to do labeling. But I say no, do labor grease labeling because you know best how you should label your data. We actually tried at one of the clients, we threw a <laughs> pie party and we brought a bunch of people in to help us to label the data. Lots of work to modify and correct those labels back of what they did because they had no idea of the context. So those are the things which you directly see the value in amount of effort. Well, obviously, I don't like doing labeling as well. No one likes it. But I actually enjoyed it because once I sat and worked, especially in the Rasa NLU, when you have to detect entities, there are lots of questions that comes back to you because people talk really differently. The sentence is not as structured as like really reading a book. So this product, you know, is, for example, of your interest, but the way people ask it or even the intent could be twofolded. So those are the things that gives you a lot more understanding of maybe this label really is not the best. I have to improve. I have to modify. But I think the best practice is to start small and then iterate, improve, and then add to it. And this labeling, especially for the NLP, that's something which has to be continued to the future. And that was a big takeaway from um, this project that a client understood that all the labeling that they were doing manually really not helpful. It wasn't telling them anything. And at the back of that, we sort of ran out of time, but it's also very important that everything is directed towards one goal. So you should have a benchmark when you start Start doing all this work. You monitor, you know this is where you start and you know where you're heading and you actually monitor this progress over the time. Also, 
it's not funny that sometimes you go in and people in the same team, they're doing different things. So make sure everyone is actually working towards the same performance metrics. What matters in your business? What do you think you have to be measuring against and keep that? and make sure everyone is working towards the same performance metrics. These are the things which I actually see in some of the places. And there's a lot of efforts, but it's not directed towards you know, one goal. It's all over the place. And when you look at it, you can't make any sense of it. Because last year, you had 100 labels. This year, you have 70 labels. At some point, you just move to having 10 labels. So those are the things that just tell you nothing. So be organized and be systematic in a way you actually decide on the entire pipeline. That's why I always say you have to see the big picture. Oh, good. So what, what we're going to do is, yeah, find, find some seats. So 100 percent, like this is my hero. All right, I'll leave you in the very capable hands of Nick Ryan. Thanks, thanks a lot for having me here. This is like really amazing to be here with other data scientists because, you know, I'm in a little room writing code with my two dogs and so they're probably the, the second and third best data scientists in the region where I'm at, you know, just by <laughs> osmosis. And so it's really good to see, you know, so many people in one place. And so, yeah, like I'm, I'm five hours away from the city. Um, yeah, my wife bought a house on the beach without telling me and um, said, you're going to live here for the rest of your life. Enjoy. And so I've had to make the best of it. And so it's been good and bad. It hasn't been easy at times, um, but if I can scratch a living in the middle of nowhere, um, yeah, you guys can do it. And so it's something that people ask me a lot, like um, how do you start your own business, own thing? And um, yeah, I, I fumbled through it. And so I just wanted to take you through some of the things that I've done wrong so that you guys can go out and make a completely different set of mistakes. And then Felipe will interview you or whatever, and you can share your learnings to people like this. So um, yeah, without further ado. Who's new to data science? Who's, who would say they've been doing it for sort of less than a couple, couple of years or something? Cool. Oh, awesome. Okay, lots of people. That's good. I'm, I'm glad that I've got this in there. That's, that's fantastic. Okay, so how, how you can get started in data science, or at least how I did anyway, and um, some things that I've learned and some things that I wish I had picked up earlier. So hopefully that will help you guys. Next thing, it's a bit cheesy, I know, but um, this is all my wife's fault. I blame her. She's not here. But how you can leverage um, social media to sort of build a brand. And even though you live in the middle of nowhere, you can still get um, a bit of work trickling in, which is important because, you know, your dogs and kids need to eat. And how you can make money as a data science consultant. So the different ways that you can make money and so the different uh, sort of options you have and how you can, um, you know, potentially make a little bit more money for less time. So it's a shift that time for money equation more in your favor when, as opposed to like a full-time job or something like that. I'm going to tell you about where the gaps are in the market right now, where I see for data science, where there's some uh, pretty good work that's paying really well, where you can go and make a bit of coin. And I'm going to look ahead, so three to five years and talk about where I see it heading and what you should be probably learning now to take advantage of that. And like, it's a pretty small group, so feel free to ask, um, ask questions. So what was that next one? Oh yeah, getting started in data science. You've seen this diagram, and this is kind of high level. I'm going to go more sort of low level after this, but um, there's one that's missing here. Uh, so you've got your hacking skills, maths and stats, and uh, domain expertise. What's really missing there is business acumen, I think. Being able to uh, communicate with people, being able to present, being able to uh, write reports, being able to, um, you know, that trusted advisor kind of stuff. And so that's the fourth one I reckon that's, that's missing. The maths and stats, as well as the domain expertise, you see data analysts, you see researchers uh, have, have this, um, but what I think separates a data analyst from a data scientist is the hacking skills. 
the software development, the ability to be able to automate things, to be able to write code, that's the cr critical skill. So for me, my, my background was um, actuarial studies. I did actuarial studies in finance at university. I sucked at code. I was terrible. I've never done a programming class in my life. I've never, I've, I've had to pick that stuff up. And so that's something that I've really had to work hard at over the years. And being attached to dev teams at various times has been really helpful for that as well. I knew that um, actuarial studies wasn't for me uh, pretty early on when I was doing it. And so um, one of my mates who was a bit older than me, um, he was probably about 40, um, so around my age, and he was jaded with actuarial studies um, when he went through university. And so he did um, computer science and stats. And so he recommended I do the same. I told him to get lost, and I kind of regret that decision. So I think that um, that computer science and stats, or even data science courses, they weren't available when I was uh, I was younger. I definitely do that. So you, you want stats and you want programming together. I'll tell you uh, more about what you those sort of lower level skills. But um, you kind of need to identify your, your weaknesses and, and what you, you need to work on. I know, I love that picture. It's fantastic. Eh? It's great. Um, and then to set yourself um, set the goals, a bit of a timetable, and put in like one to two hours per day of deliberate practice. And so for me, I had a really long commute because I was living like 100 k's away from where I lived. And it was like two and a half hours each way. And it really sucked. And I did that for ages. And um, rather than sleeping or rather than reading novels or whatever, and I um, started doing online courses. I started doing uh, MOOCs, and I did stacks and stacks and stacks of them. And I started off in the early days of Coursera when they didn't know what their pricing model was, they didn't know what their business model was, and everything was free. So it was brilliant. You could do all the assignments, you could do all the, every, everything for free. And so I got like a free Masters of Data Science education on the train. And so um, by doing, it was originally called um, Data Analysis with R. And so I didn't have a strong programming background. And so I found the transition to programming through R a lot easier than going to Python or Java or whatever it is. Like, and, and I would say that as well. If you have a stronger computer science background, uh, you're more comfortable around code, you're probably going to be more comfortable with Python. If you don't, then I think R is going to be easier for you to learn. But pick one, learn it, use it as a tool, and then learn the other. Because most of the places I've seen, they're either R shops or they're Python shops. And so being able to do both of them is pretty handy. If you ask me at any one time what language I know, it's whatever the hell the project is that I'm on. And I kind of forget the other one, and then I've got to pick it up again. So, um, but yeah, either R or Python. And um, later on, John Hopkins University had a, a really good end-to-end -end sort of data science um, specialization, and um, that was one that I did as well. And um, that was really good. Like it, we went through, you know, even version control and exploratory data analysis and reproducible research, and it was it was just fantastic. So as it says there, I I saw the writing on the wall for actuarial studies. I saw that um, double-clicking on the spreadsheet and waiting 10 minutes for it to load wasn't really good. I saw that there were better ways of doing things. So I started doing some, you know, at the time it was sort of SAS, started mucking around with um, R later, later on. And um, it was just a fantastic tool. And I knew I, knew I loved it. I, I knew that I was, I didn't really even, when I was before this, actually, I, I was pretty into um, statistics and GLMs and stuff like that. And so this kind of, this whole data science thing grew up around me. So I've been very fortunate to be right place at the right time. I once wrote about this, and this had over 200,000 views. And so um, this is what I think is the asset. So these are the 80% of skills you can learn in 20% of the time and to be very effective on a data science team. And so you're not going to be like a superstar, but you're going to be very effective very quickly. So if you can master these, like, you know, you're going to get hired.
So the very first thing is to be down with the command line and to just basic stuff, how you make files, how you can navigate those files, how you even like how you're getting other software as well, you know, just being able to control your computer with commands is hugely powerful. And so that's almost like a precursor to everything else, prerequisite, sorry, for um, version control. Now, even still, like today, when I go to different teams, it, it amazes me that some places aren't using version control. Cardinal sin, terrible stuff. And so everyone's got their own copy of whatever the hell the code they're working on. And it's just, it's completely nuts. Like how they manage their workflows is beyond me. So version control is critical for data science. 90% of the data that you see is going to be in a SQL database of some kind, usually. And that's even true today. There's text and there's other stuff, but if you're working in, in finance or in banking or in something like that, you're going to see a lot of SQL. So you need to know SQL. You need to know your databases. You need to know some, some of these concepts. You don't need to be a DBA, but you need to be able to be pretty comfortable with querying SQL. But then for the data that's not in SQL, you need to be able to read it. Read it in, you know, it could, it could be from a website, it could be like JSON data, it could be whatever. But um, R or Python, pick one and know how to read it into your computer. And then once the data is there, you need to be able to manipulate it into a modeling data set or a data set for analysis, because very rarely is it going to be in a form that's suitable for use. So you're going to need to know how to do that in R and Python. You know, dplyr, pandas, pick one. You can plot your data in R and Python. So with plotting, like you know, ggplot2 um, in R, seaborn, matplotlib, pandas, you know, just exploratory data analysis, basic plots. Then I would say you'd, you'd go to the pretty simple models, your regression models, linear re regression, logistic regression. If you work in banking, you pretty much make a career out of logistic regression. That's it. Like, you know, there's people walking around getting paid over 100 grand who just know logistic regression, or kind of know logistic regression. And you get an understanding of some of the things to look for, and it allows you to then leapfrog onto, um, to, onto other models. If you're using Scikit, right, or, or, it's, or Carrot, it's pretty much only like one or two lines away from doing any model anyway. So who gives a damn, right? Like, you know, this, this is like 80 20. This is trying to get there as quickly as you can. And then reproducible research. I don't see this happening often enough. So reproducible research. So in R, R Markdown, um, in Python, uh, Jupyter Notebooks. So um, weaving together your, your code, exploratory plots, your text, and even like taking your raw data as well and being able to show the code that then processes that data into a modeling data set and then showing the, the analysis. And that's kind of like how you can show, how you can educate your team and how you can even prove that what you've done is, is valid, right? It's a great learning tool for you, for you, for your team and it's sort as well. And finally, you can present results. I used to hate present, presenting stuff. I used to absolutely hate it. Barrett's worked with me, he'll tell you. It was just, but um, my, my dad, for instance, is the most softly spoken, quiet guy. Like when he was angry, and I'm talking mega pissed off, he'd ask someone to make him a cup of tea. And then you're like, oh shit, like he's angry. <laughs> so he, he was a country solicitor, so he was, a, he was a lawyer. I remember being a young kid, like I was 10 or 11, and I went to court with him. I didn't like, I didn't steal anything or, or set fire or anything, but I was just there watching him. And um, he just owned it. Like he was there with the big booming voice and everything. And I'm like, oh, who's this dude? Like he's psycho. This. And and I said, like, Dad, how the hell did you do that? And he's like, oh, how does a, a chippy or how's a carpenter like hammer a nail? It's just what I've been doing for the last 30 years, mate. It's just part of my job. And same with the presentation skills as well. Just to get the message across, you don't have to be Winston Churchill. I sure as hell I'm, I'm not. But just to be able to present something in a coherent way is a really important skill. Yeah, this is embarrassing. I hate this slide. Um, <laughs> so this is really leveraging social media when you live in the middle of nowhere to be able to make people aware that you're existing and so that you can get some food to buy, buy groceries. This is my backyard. Like this, I'm, I'm dead set. This is, this is where I live. My wife, right, she 
I was fried from a role before I started to do my own thing. Absolutely fried. And so I wasn't a good dad and I wasn't around much. And, you know, it was pretty shit time, really. And so my wife is a Bundy chick. Um, just we were there and we knew we wanted to live somewhere else. And uh, she just went and put an offer on the house. She's always controlled the money. My money apparently gets paid into a joint account. I've never had a card or access to it. <laughs> oh, no. Like, I'm, dead, I'm at a bar with my brother. I've got a, I've got a wire in money. I'm going to be like, yeah, yeah, Dal, 40 bucks. Yeah, it's my round. Like, here's a, so. so anyway, so I don't no, she controls all that. And so, yeah, she just threw down money for this place. We had it because we sold a, a place near Sydney. And so she said, guess what, champ? You're living there. And I'm like, well, there's no drugs except there's no jobs except selling drugs. And, you know, it's, it's really hard because there's a lot of guys that are younger and better than me at that. And so... And she said, no, nah, you'll, you'll work something out. You'll be right. And so I said, well, what are we going to do? And we had a bit of runway. I had about a year to work this out. We came up with a content calendar. We bought a bottle of rum. I drank about three quarters of it. She's a little. She drank a quarter of it. And um, we came up with at least, uh, there must have been 150 different posts, different things that we could write about, different things about data science. He asked me to do it now. I could come up with 200. Like I could come up with 500. I could come up with as many things as you want me to. And that's how you know you're really passionate about something and you really love something. And so then what that enabled us to do was to sort of have um, more of like a, well, her really, a targeted campaign for what we're going to do, what message we're going to get out there and who we're trying to get to, to get a bit of work. And so far it's been successful because we're still alive, we're still living, got food and stuff. But the key thing in this is, as well is bringing that online experience, taking, getting the people online and then speaking to them offline because like it or not, business is still done over lunch and coffee. So you can meet people, you can uh, call them, but unless you're speaking face-to-face, -face, they're probably not going to pay for anything so that's you guys are in a much better position than me to be able to do that and so a huge amount of the, the work that I get is from Brisbane. I've had some in the US. Um, so UC Berkeley, I did a postgraduate course in data science with them. Even in England, there's a, a guy over there that's doing um, AI and, um, and automation for project management and construction, that sort of thing. And so I've had a few random ones, but the bulk of it is in Brisbane because Brisbane is the biggest city. That's where the money is. It's 28 minutes by plane and it's the shortest, shittiest plane ride in the world. And it's just, it, it's terrible right because if the plane goes up they give you like a juice or and, and a biscuit and you gotta like eat it really quickly because then the train and then it's like okay now we're making our descent and you're like hang on i've only just got only just went up and so but it's really expensive it's the return trip can be eleven hundred dollars sometimes so yeah they get you and so but i, I usually pay about 250 300 but when it's 1100 i go no nah, i'm going to take the train and so the train's a lot better but some guys have had a fight right next to me on the train uh, so it's not not superb so if you are going to go out and do some social media, the key thing is to provide value, to provide value to your audience, like a huge, a huge value, don't ask for much. And that didn't do well, I don't think, and the thing I would do um, a bit better is to focus on a niche. So if I was just known as the guy who did AWS SageMaker or whatever, and I, that was just all I did, I think I'd have more success in people coming to me rather than just kind of going other science. And there'd be less sort of tire kickers coming through because I literally have thousands of people from all over the world hitting my page. But of those, only one or two are actually going to ever want to buy something off me. So the more niche you can go, I think the better. And that's probably a lesson that I wish I'd learned earlier. But yeah, trying to 
not talk about yourself or what you're interested in, but try and think of the audience and what they might want. And you have this huge, huge group of people learning data science. Unfortunately, then they don't have money to pay for you. So, so that's kind of like a dead end. It's their second and third degree connections that do. So what you're trying to do is to provide content for them, but then every so often have something out there for relevant to someone like their manager or whatever. And then that's probably the most success that I've had for very targeted sort of messages there. So see what I mean? I'm no social media marketer, but I've had to do this crap because you kind of have to eat. So it hasn't been all fun. Like it has been a lot of work to get this stuff happening. And then when you've got a contract as well, it may be like a three-month thing. So you're sort of looking for the next contract to roll to as well. Um, having said that, I can't complain because you can charge a lot more than what you could get like sort of full-time for that period of time when you're working. But you have to remember December, January, no one does anything. No, no contracts. You won't get anything. So um, yeah, that's when I start busking. So the opportunities... It has been really, really good. The opportunity that I, I don't have there, which is probably the main one, the main reason why I did this, is because I wasn't seeing my, my daughters much. I've got two daughters, they're um, eight and nine years old. We go out surfing together. They do so many different sports and activities. I'm literally hemorrhaging money for their, their little things that they do. So what money I make pretty much goes on their gymnastics, you know, like basketball and, you know, like singing and dancing classes and stuff. So I'm always kind of fit my work hours around what they're doing and so that's really good and we homeschool them as well like my wife mainly does and so I've got an open door policy in my office so whatever I'm doing they can come in and they can show me their drawings and stuff which even from the age of two they were way better than me at. The client work has been really good because again you can shift that time for money equation in your favor so two days work is pretty much five days if you're working full time so that's kind of good as well but having said that there's a huge uncertainty in that work when it comes through. I've got to go to some pretty cool places. In one month, I was in Auckland, then Sydney, then over in England, Bristol, Manchester, London. Um, so that was pretty cool. And then we took the, the kids over, plus I paid my dad to go over as well, my wife. And then, um, so I did some work and then we did like a Harry Potter tour around England, Ireland, Scotland, Wales and stuff. So that was pretty amazing. The big thing as well is having great conversations from people all over the world. Like JT Cosman is a mate, you know, Terry Singh, speak to him. Like, you know, lots of people that are, people from Stanford, all sorts of random people like everywhere I'll, I'll speak to on a pretty regular basis. So I'll really be able to get my finger on the pulse of what's happening globally. That's been hugely valuable to, to know what's coming next and what these people are working on. These people are way, way smarter than me. I really like data science has been really good to me, really good to my family. And so giving back is, has been a, a real treat for me. It has been really good. I give back to an extent. I have had people um, send me their company data sets and say, hey, Nick, I'm having the trouble fitting a, a model here. Can you help us out? That's bad, right? Like, you know, we could all go to jail for that. That's bad. Having said that, if anyone wants to analyze any data sets, I've got heaps of them, like, you know, some real life data sets. <laughs> Don't do that, seriously. That's bad. You go to jail. Um, I have been able to have a diversified income stream, which has helped for those months where I usually have bugger all work. And um, like I said, like JT Cosman's come to Australia a couple of times, given me a call, and I've hung out with him. It's been amazing. And does anyone know JT? Like, yeah, he's a guy who, uh, he was in the army, he was in the data science team that hunted bin Laden, and he ran the, the data analytics for Obama's election campaign, and he's just a guru. Data science consulting tips. I blame my wife for these, I really do. Like, this, she does most of my slides and stuff anyway.
When you're going to a new place, this is the, the, the picture that I have in my mind because you can see, like, I've seen billion dollar sort of construction companies over in England that are pretty much running on Excel. So this is what I think is the Excel to production AI journey that um, company's going to be on and they're going to be somewhere on that journey. And when you talk to them, if they're just using Excel and you go, production AI, that's not going to happen. There's, the business just isn't ready for it. So what I found the most successful thing to do is to slowly jump them from point to point along this curve. So what you'll find in some places is uh, over-reliance on Excel. Excel is used as a database. Excel is used for financial reporting. Pretty much they're doing copy-paste for three and a half weeks uh, in every month to be able to produce the same Excel report. And um, it's just a terrible, terrible, terrible situation. So the best thing you can do for those organizations is say, hey, that Excel reporting that you're doing, it's taking you like a month. Why don't we use Power BI or something? And then it can refresh every two hours. And they go, oh my God, you're amazing. And not really. It's like there's so much work here. Here is actually where the bulk of organizations are, somewhere around here. All but the biggest and more sophisticated are down that end. So ironically, here's where all the dollars and stuff is as well. Once you've got them and the reporting's automated, and it's, um, then they go kind of reporting mad, and then they go, oh, all reports, we're reporting everything. And you go, no, 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 just like KPIs, that's good because you don't want like a car with a million controls. And then you're like, oh, what are these all these controls? You want just a few controls for knowing when things are wrong. So that's something to pull them back on as well. Then the next phase is to automate some of their business processes. And um, yeah, it was, that was alluded to earlier as well. So by automating business processes, I mean like onboarding of new customers, new clients, whatever. And so UiPath, has everyone heard of UiPath? Microsoft Flow or Logic Apps or whatever, to be able to, there might be 30 different steps in onboarding a new, a new client. You go, well, you know, 20 of those are dumb. So then we're going to use some automation software, which is drag and drop. You can stick in your Python scripts and do all sorts of stuff. You can even do models and stuff with it to be able to go, okay, email comes in. Literally, I've seen this, right? There's seven people sitting in a room. All they're doing all day is monitoring like an inbox for emails and they're flicking it to the right department. That's their job. What you can do is you can have a bot run and it's looking for a keyword in that email, then we'll open up the PDF. It will use OCR to extract the relevant information, look up to a database, paste, done, it just runs. And it's not that these people get fired, right? They just get repurposed to the work that doesn't have them stabbing their eyeballs with a pencil, which is what I do in two and a half seconds in that job. So then when you're collecting data and data and uh, as data and you're automating your, your business processes and you, you're not having the, the fat finger errors, then you go next to the, the data science phase for insights where the business is asking questions relevant to KPIs performance and you're going off to the data science team, they're doing analysis and they're coming back with reports and they're coming back with recommendations. This is offline learning. This is, this is not production AI at this stage. And so then the next step is to then take some of those learnings and then to test them to see if that's actually real and that's actually happening. So 20% of your book you can run with, I know, because you're monitoring with, with Power BI, you can see, see what's happening. You, you can go, okay, the needle's pointing the right way there. Let's do that for everyone. And then finally, finally, at the end, you're going towards um, automated decisions, real-time AI, informed by everything along this step, along these steps. So, I mean, that's kind of the journey. It's a, a huge process, and that's kind of the way that uh, I, I'd say it should go, except when there are some cases that are so damn compelling that they're screaming out for, for this. And one of those cases I was able to see um, in Brisbane, of all places, but it was to do with the categorization of bank statement transactions. So a bank there literally had two floors of people, 160 people, just looking at bank statements all day and then writing in what, what the category was. 
Now that's, we're talking $10 million plus in salaries, like annually, that's just madness to the nth degree. And I'm like, you know, there's a better way of doing that. Oh, really? I'm like, yeah, text-based classification, man. Oh yeah, we should give that a go. Yeah, you think? And so there are some reasons where you, it's just so compelling, you just got to do it. But generally speaking, that's the, and for a consultant as well, you can sort of bump along the whole thing. And then at each stage as well, you're informing and educating the team so they can do that stuff themselves as well. The other thing as well is to have a specialty, which I lacked for far, far, far too long. So I was kind of like, I'll do anything. Um, yeah, and someone would, would call me up and say, hey, we need you to help us to um, integrate a Neo4j graph database into our Vue.js uh, JavaScript like web app. Like, sure, I can do that. I don't know what any of that shit means, but fine, I can do that. <laughs> and so I did, and that was crazy. That was painful and crazy have a specialty, and the specialty is, for me anyway, automation and AI, uh, transformation of existing company, really, I mean, yeah, maybe if the right one, but using the Microsoft stack. The Microsoft stack for automation and artificial intelligence is awesome, it really is, because it's the one environment you can go, again, you can go Power BI, and also for deployment as well, having Visual Studio as an IDE is really good for developers deploying one click into Azure, like it's just, it's fantastic, and so I really like that stack, and that's what I'd say if I have a specialty, that would be it. Even though I've done the Google Cloud Data Engineering specialty, I you know, didn't really like it, but that's just personal preference. A lot of the companies that I speak to are already paying for this stuff and just not using it. It's nuts, they've got everything set up. They're paying subscriptions. They've got Azure Dev DevOps, they've got everything. It's just, it's all sitting there, not being used. So that's why I, I do this. Things I wish I knew earlier about consulting. What I've been doing, like sort of going cap in hand to a few different places and asking for work, it's kind of hard. Some of the people I've been speaking to for four years still haven't got pen to paper on them. So there's a whole heap in business development and that sucks. That takes you away from the stuff that you love, which is you know, using code and data to solve problems. So I would recommend if you can to go for contracts, having it locked in and or, or full-time full work if you want to. If you can get work from home, fantastic. I find um, work from home, I can easily do four to five hours hands-on keyboard typing a day comfortably, and that's not including meetings or anything like that. Two days to one, as Philippe was saying uh, to me earlier. I'm just next level productive because I know what it was like when I had um, about 35 people. I was getting tapped on the shoulder like every five minutes. I couldn't get anything done. And also knowing myself as well, I like making things. I don't really enjoy managing people. I prefer to be mentoring, advising, whatever, but I don't want to manage people. And so for me, contract work works pretty well. My kids are homeschooled. Um, I'm willing to uh, relocate to different places if the work is around there. If someone wants me to go to Auckland or whatever, I'm like, sure, let's, let's go for a bit. Um, so that's important because in different places, which I'll tell you about later, there are some really great opportunities now for data scientists. And unless you get, unless you can easily get, like I reckon depending on the size, two to five million in sales, you're gonna have to be responsible for other people's like salaries. And that's really hard. So. I'd say unless you can comfortably get that, probably don't start your own business. I've got an arrangement with a couple of my mates where um, there's two of them, two guys that I'd probably give a kidney to if they need that. Like, so really, really good friends. And if there's something that's too big for me, I might put, pull down 20% of it for expenses or for even just for me for winning the business. And then the 80% is, is a pot that's left. And so we'll each discuss what percentage of the pot we get. There's never been anything like a crossword between us. So if you've got that kind of arrangement with a few people, that's fantastic. So where are the gaps in the market right now? I think um, short-term consulting right now. If you want to get bang for buck, like I, I really think, because the alternatives are KPMG or something like that. So if you're a, you're a big company, 
you've got a short-term project, you may want to get bring someone in, and then you're like, hell, I'm going to have to get KPMG, then you've got the overhead of the managers, then you've got the BAs, and you've got everything like that. And even one of those people could be like four grand, five grand, if they're specialized in something, six, seven, eight, I don't know. There's a lot, a lot of money, a huge amount of money. And so if you can go in at a fraction of that, it's still a good rate for you. The company's laughing as well. So that's, that's a really good opportunity to go in there. Where we are in the maturity of data science, as I was sort of saying earlier, most of the stuff is still pretty simple in some of these contracts, especially government contracts. So you can get big money, like, you know, still pretty, I'm talking $800,000 a day doing BI, very simple insights, very simple analysis. So those sorts of things are out there. You don't have to push too hard to be like a machine learning engineer. If you're just getting started, there's really good work that's available for to you, like right now. It's not too hard to get to that sort of skill level. Right now in government, there's a huge push for automation and AI. It's absolutely massive. So I had um, two recruiters offering me con contracts on one day, both from Canberra, and um, they were offering what was called market rates. I was like, what the hell are market rates? And they're like, oh, so you're kind of the market, so just put down a number. And so this is, this is kind of earlier when my wife still was like, oh, Bundaberg. And so, um, but yeah, it's kind of like if, you, if you've got the skills and got the experience and you're willing to relocate to Canberra right now, pick a number. Like it's, it's amazing, like 300, 400 grand. Some of the more progressive councils are starting to hire people in automation roles as well. And um, some of them are uh, also like paying pretty, pretty well. The benefit as well of uh, federal and state government is that you get to experiment. They, they have pretty good budgets. Some of them, you know, even um, human services, they've got like a $300 million budget. It's just amazing how much money is flying around there. So worth looking into. Some of the problems right now, nobody knows how to deploy models in a lot of the places that I've seen. So you can get like um, 100 devs, you can get 100 data scientists, and you can get no models being built and deployed into production for years. Like it's just tragic. And so what the problem is, what the impasse is, is that devs think we suck at code, and so they're not keen to work with us to deploy our models because it's spaghetti crap code. Data scientists often don't have the dev skills to be able to plumb things into production. So that's why data engineers are getting 1200 bucks a day on 12-month contracts and more. Really important to your team. And there's kind of two things that can happen, I think, to break this impasse over time. And I think that uh, we as data scientists can take on some more dev skills to make sure that our models get into, into production. And uh, I will talk about it later on, but in, in the pipeline of deploying models, in the data science process, try to get, think about deployment from day one and how you're going to do it and even set up a dummy pipeline and just run some numbers through it to see if you can do that. And so then when you are doing models and you are doing testing them out, you can see how they can go like in a staging um, environment or st stage environment or something like that, just adapt deployment because it kind of seems like they do everything on their laptop and they go, oh, hell, we need to deploy it. And then that's problematic. So now where are we heading as an industry? Talking three to five years. I think we'll be writing less machine learning code. And the guys before us, before me, was, were saying the same thing. Azure machine learning is drag and drop. You throw in your own scripts, AWS as well. But what we're going to need to be able to do is to glue in these different services. And so that requires some dev skills. And um, from different places I'm seeing, I'm not seeing that, uh, those sorts of skills around all that much. Like integrations with existing software. So if it's a startup, it's usually probably going to be some kind of JavaScript framework. If it's enterprise software, it's probably going to be C Sharp. And some of the stuff with Microsoft, where they just go, bugger you, yeah, it's not going to be Python. It's either C Sharp or JavaScript, pick one. Like that's, so knowing some of those skills uh, are going to be important. But I think it will be less, as, as I was saying before, less of writing stuff from scratch and more just using this, automate this, putting the services in and just making it, it happen. So automation and AI together. 
right now, most of the companies out there are just dipping their toe in the water. And so it all, it, even overseas, I was speaking to a guy in Texas the other day as well, and he's saying the same thing as well. They're just, it's dashboards, it's automation of business processes, it's RPA, it's that sort of stuff. And I think that's going to look that way for the next three years, maybe three to five years. UiPath is good. UiPath is really good software, but unless you're a big company, it's really expensive, really prohibitively expensive for you to do it. I um, mean, Orchestrator, which is where um, the, the bots are sitting, 20,000 US each bot that you've got, if it's running at 8,000 US, really expensive stuff. And then um, the cost of um, consultants as well, it's huge. They were talking about having a cloud offering, but I haven't seen it happen yet. Maybe it has. There is at the moment also plenty of simple work out there that you can get, so you don't need to be, do, be an AI engineer, so don't, don't go too crazy because, again, some of these departments, some of these companies are after some insights and some pretty simple stuff, so you can get some pretty good dollars doing that. If you can to do some of this stuff, if you, if you can tie this stuff together, if you can take Excel and make it into, like for example, a company that I'm consulting with at the moment, they had uh, a mining company, but they had a whole heap of um, Excel applications that they would um, have their consultants use out in the field. And so they had a team, um, a few people, and they were trying to make them into like C-sharp.net applications. And they've been trying for about three years and nothing's come out. So by using R Shiny, by using uh, Dash in, in Python, um, I'm able to get you know, one of them out every two days. Three years compared to two, get two days, five people compared to one person. Some of the developers have stopped coming to meetings. They're not happy. <laughs> yeah. It's not hard to do. Or if, you, if you're using um, R, R Shiny, Shiny apps I couldn't be easy to do that stuff. And so, but they just don't know about it. And so you can do some pretty simple stuff and it can look pretty amazing pretty quickly. As I alluded to before, the next phase is all about deploying machine learning models into production. I see very few places that are doing this and I see even fewer that are doing this well. So like, you know, amazing, it would be great if we could do that again. And so there's no repeatable process for getting this done. The best process that I've seen is the Microsoft Team data size process. If you're a big organization, this is the way to do repeatable uh, machine learning models into production. It's got the code, code fragments for you to use, everything from data quality checks. It's got roles and responsibilities for different people on your team. It talks about the process of checking in, in code as well in different, different versions. It even has documents like charter documents. It has exit te template forms. It has everything there and no one knows about it. And like you could probably build a business just by going around to places and going, hey, you should be doing this. It's wonderful stuff. And so I would say, again, if you've got two people or something in your data science team, it's not going to be great. But if you are a big business and you want an end-to-end -end process that's going to work, I can go with that. Because it's Microsoft, it plays nicely in the Microsoft stack, which is what I'm about as well. So that's pretty much all I had. Um, but if anyone wants to ask me questions, feel free. <laughs> With a step guide that you had, you know, Excel machine. Oh, yeah. Just wondering, you know, what percentage spend your time on at each step and if uh, your skills are probably a bit overkill for those maybe bottom three, four steps. Yeah, well, I mean, that is a really good question. So for the, the contract that I'm doing, all Excel. So it's like 100% of my time is getting them from Excel to something else. Yeah, like I mean, I my kids need to eat, so I'm, I'm I've no ego about it. So if someone wants me to do Power BI, I'll do that because you can still get some money and stuff from it. But um, like it, excitingly, it is kind of exciting because I do have like a um, oh, so this other company as well, which is another um, mining company. They've got some um, mag plugs, and they want to be able to detect when these magnetic plugs have failures. And so that's actually going to be like a um, an image like sort of classification model. So that means I get to play with like deep learning, which I'm really excited about. So that's happening in the next couple of weeks. I can't wait, but that's rare for consulting. Most places aren't doing that. Yeah, it's most of the time is the boring stuff. Even the data analysis for insights, I do probably more of that than I do plugging stuff into machine learning models. Um, machine learning that I do, 
30%. All the other crap, including the web apps and stuff, is probably 70%. Hi, you were talking about developing a niche and sort of leading us into like a Microsoft stack, that kind of environment. My question is, with those sort of systems like Microsoft stack and AWS, they're pretty enterprise-based systems. Quite literally just getting started into this as a career path. Yep. And we might not have access to those because they are enterprise systems. How would we learn how to use them in competency? Yes, definitely. You usually have free trials with that sort of stuff, and usually they throttle your um, like what you can do with it and how, how much storage you have and that sort of stuff. So you can usually sign up for a free trial, and it could either be for a length of time or you could have um, some of the power reduced on performance. But I know with Azure that they have a whole heap of ser services that are free like forever. Yeah, some of them as well. Um, I wonder if you could talk a bit more about how you're going to start off getting your first clients. Like if, you're, if you don't already have a reputation, as an independent consultant, how do you get to trust you with the data? That was actually incredibly hard. My very, very, very first client was even like, it's kind of like six years ago. It was like, that was the very start of the business. That was almost like, well, I need to actually have an ABN and everything. And that was actually when I was at, um, I was at a car show and it was a local council and they were, um, someone there was asking about a survey and the lady who was doing the survey, she works for mayor's office or whatever. She said, oh, it's gonna be such a pain in the butt to analyze this survey later on. And I got my ears pricked and I'm like, really? <laughs> like, oh, you don't say, well, I can do that for you. And she was like, you know, you can take away my survey pain. And I'm like, yeah, I could probably do that for you. And so it was, it was pretty simple. It was just like plotting. Well, they had to make a case that they, the event was bringing more people in from out of town. And so it was just plotting stuff on a map from where these people were coming from. And then some pretty simple plots of like, you know, distribution of ages and that sort of stuff and how long they were staying there. And that was actually the start of the business. That was the, that was the, the first kind of thing that I had. And I, I charged like 800 bucks for the whole thing or whatever. And they were just like, oh, it's amazing. And I'm like, oh, it's so much money. And so um, that's how it started. But I think as well, the social media stuff has really helped to get those conversations. And then to have people message me and go, oh, that's interesting. And then you message them back and you go, oh, well, I'll meet, meet you next time I'm in Brisbane. Next time I'm in Brisbane, meet them for a coffee, meet them for a few more coffees, meet them for a few more coffees. And then finally they sign you up. It's frustrating. It's a long process. As I said, four years sometimes. Thanks for the presentation. So, based on your LinkedIn profile, it says that you started five years ago with your company, and that's what you're doing on one side the sales in order to find new virtual pipeline. Yep. Revenue stream, very important. And on the other side, you also do uh, basically the operations. So, um, in terms of money generation, in terms of revenue, so how you manage, uh, you know, what you suggest is a, is a good pricing strategy in order to keep like cash flow coming. And on the other side, uh, when you then hit like the big projects like like Deloitte before, uh, how you uh, make sure that you have uh, the people available in order to you make it happen? So with, uh, I'm probably painting a, a picture that's, my company is very small, it's just me. It's only just me, I, I work by myself. So, so the company is me. So any of the bigger projects, and there haven't been any too big really. So probably the biggest project involved um, two of my friends. And so all we do is we just have a pot and then we just say like, oh, I did 20% of that. And mate said, yeah, I did 50%. Yeah, cool, you did, you know, whatever. And then that's it. And so that's how we divide it. But we all discuss it. And so it's really individuals. We're just individuals that come together for some big projects. But that's only happened a few times where I've had to really call on those guys. In terms of building pipeline, very hard. So you, you, I need to probably go to Brisbane about once a month and then just have coffee with people, just chat to people. And so that's all it is. Um, it's like dating. You kind of get rejected a lot of times and then eventually get a yes. Um, so that's kind of all it is. It's like a, a protracted forever dating game of, of mass rejection. Well, 
Yeah, that sometimes they'll and and sometimes they'll say like, oh, I've had some that have been like, oh, we can't get funding now, and then oh, I'll come back later, and then so you do the dance, and it sucks, it really sucks, and so lose patience, but you don't punch people, even though you, sometimes you really want to. <laughs> it's really hard, but when you do land a good client, it is rewarding, um, and, and it's it's great being able to help them solve uh, some complicated problems. Just hard work. Thank you. Thanks. Um, yeah, thanks for talking. It was great. I suppose just going on to a little bit more about I suppose, how you go out and you get that work, obviously networking and meeting people, but being in the middle of nowhere, you mentioned something for you, and yeah. I imagine in society anyway, you know, it's one of the best places to advertise yourself. Is there any lessons that you've learned from when you first started to now in regards to, do you find that you post the same amount of content, far less now for your network? I mean, obviously there's lots of different ways, there's videos, there's podcasts, there's texts, posts on, on LinkedIn, any advice in regards to what you found to be the most effective ways of reaching out to that network? Yeah, I think, um, so for me, there is, I'm starting to realize as well that um, some of the going too hard the social media as well does take me away from sometimes the consulting work that I'm doing for existing clients. So when I'm looking like, okay, and I've got a few, then I kind of quieten down a bit, which is silly because the contract will run out and I'll need to do something. <laughs> so, um, But I, I thought the content calendar of who you're targeting and what message you want and what action you want from those um, people is a really good way to do it. And so you can sort of plan your strategy. And this is my wife's idea. So you can uh, sort of plan um, longer term what it's going to look like and you can rearrange things and if things happen then you can you know different comments about it and so it's a combination of some videos some text some people will never look at videos some people will look at um, text um, but I'd reiterate that anything local is really important so um, a local contact is worth many times more than a contact overseas most of the people who visit my page are either USA or India and um, then it's Australia UK so um, like I, I would ideally like to have just Australians, I like to have all people in, in Brisbane because that's where I get most of my work. But it's really hard to do that. So that, that's the other thing that I'd say. If you can talk about local events or you've got a better chance of meeting them in person for coffee and then getting some work and definitely attending this sort of thing is huge. Like if there was this, I'd be cheering, but it's only me and the two pugs at the moment. I want to ask you about the effort estimate. So when you meet a customer and you talk about, hey, this is my problem and I want you to solve this or what do you think about it, how do you go about understanding and <coughs> making it quickly to get it right? Approximately. Yeah. yeah, it's at, at the moment I'm kind of got a different arrangement where it's like um, you know days days per week. It's a few days per week, and um, that sort of works pretty well at a day rate. So um, that effort estimation has been really hard, and that's something that if you can get it right, it can be pretty good. Especially if you've got some work, a lot of work that you've done before, and you can leverage some of that work, so that then, like for instance, like if it if it looks like five days work, but you've got some script, then it's actually like one and a half or two days work you know and so that's where it really comes into its own but so far most of what I've done has focused on either days or hourly stay away from hourly it's not good and also in the contract I have sort of however many days a week for and pay, payment per fortnight or per month or whatever and so you just have sort of set pay and so it's certainty on their side and also certainty on your side as well that's what I found to be most successful so more on 
do you have to see the data first to understand how big is the job or? Usually, well, what the, one of the existing clients I, I did is they just had a, a pool and they're saying like, we're willing to have you on for this many weeks and for this many days right. and we're allocating this chunk of money for you. And so we own your time for that time. So yeah, so I haven't had to do much estimating recently anyway. And I tend to get it wrong. I tend to think, oh yeah, I can do that in two days. No. So then I'm up to midnight and I don't try to do it. But I, I keep the clients I have um, updated daily on progress. Sure. And so that, that daily end of day email is really good. Um, just a question around intellectual property. Do you ever have any issues with a client that the code or the and the code? Just usually give it to them. Just like all the IP, all the code, everything like that. Um, take it. And um, so it's usually, or I usually push to a repository where they have. But if you uh, reuse that code with a new client down the track? I would probably not, like for instance, I would reuse, um, like in the Microsoft Team data science process, I'd reuse the data quality code to, to check that because in one line you can get an interactive report that you can look through and stuff like that. Or if I had solved that particular problem, I would have that methodology for doing it, but I wouldn't, um, it's not going to be applicable to someone else's data usually. That's um, the theme of what you're doing. So you'd have like a modeling code or you'd have like a data quality code. And most of that is available online in different places that you can pick up and sort of use as well. Um, it's Python or R. Um, worth looking into uh, Microsoft Team Data Science for that, like some of that modeling and also, um, yeah, and, uh, data checking code there as well. I, I don't know if you have the luxury of being able to pick between projects yet, but if you did, what would be your thought process in terms of what you pick, what you dedicate your time and resources for? Oh, that's a good question. So I would like to be doing definitely more machine learning uh, projects because that's my passion. And so, but you kind of need to do what comes through the door. And so that varies. Like, you know, you saw how excited I'm getting with my, like, you know, image tracking. It's like, oh my God, I'm getting to do image classification. That's exciting. So yeah, I'm not, it's not like I've got a huge pipeline because otherwise I'd, I'd, I'd be thinking about taking people on, but it's just not that stage yet. And so, um, yeah, ironically as well, I was speaking to a guy in, um, in Brisbane who crushed my soul. I originally, I was trying to build a consulting company and have staff and everything like that. And he said to me, the most profitable consulting companies have one or two people. And so as soon as you get other people on there, then you've got to pay salaries and stuff like that. And then there's also a risk that they'll splinter off and form their own thing. And then there's just headaches. And he said as well, like, what kind of income would you like at the end of this? I gave him a figure and he said, you could get consulting in Brisbane tomorrow if you wanted to. So he said, why would you take on all the risk of all these people? So that was, that was emotional because it's something I was building for a long time, but um, perfect sense. He just destroyed me with logic. I yeah. do a last question if there is one. I just have a quick one, so you may have time for one more. In the government contracts you've seen, do they consistently require security clearance? A lot of them. takes out anyone who's not the a lot of them do, yeah, unfortunately. And um, the more security clearance you have, um, then the more the contract's worth. So if you're talking ASIO and they're interviewing your relatives and people that you've spoken to at the shops and stuff like that, and that's like a six-month clearance to get that, then it's huge. Like it's ivory back scratcher type money um, because it's a subset of a subset of a subset of a subset kind of thing. So, yeah, unfortunately, a lot of them do. I don't know why. Like some of the data I don't think is... Since it's an open data... You mentioned you were uh, working in different regions and uh, overseas. Do you see a different level of maturity between uh, different regions in Australia and different countries? 
Yeah, like where I live, I'm <laughs> never going to get any work ever for as long as I live. Yeah. <laughs> so that's, they're really far behind. Um, there's a lot of mullet cuts and stuff around, and if I have lunch at the bar, there's probably going to be a fight. So they're not really mature in terms of analytics and stuff around there. Um, like definitely Melbourne, Sydney in Australia, um, really, really good. Really, really, really good. Overseas, um, I was lucky in London uh, to go there, and I even spent some time with the Microsoft developer advocate for um, AI um, over there and they're, they're killing it over there as well so um, and London I think is feels a bit more real to an Australian than like Silicon Valley would because they're kind of like um, it's just I don't think there's as much um, BS and stuff as there is like over over in the US I think yeah London and I think Australia you see more similarities than you do uh, differences uh, Sydney Melbourne um, yeah I wanted to tell you about the RMIT Online Masters of Data Science Strategy and Leadership. I was one of the industry advisors for this program. It's an online master's program and it covers both data science strategy and leadership and it has also a technical component. Highly, highly recommend it for people wanting to get ahead. With the program, you can gain this advanced strategic leadership and data science capabilities required to influence executive leadership teams and deliver organization-wide solutions. For more information, visit online.rmit.edu. I wanted to tell you about We Are Rubik's, one of Australia's leading pure data consulting companies delivering project outcomes for some of the world's leading brands, growing rapidly and with offices in Melbourne, Sydney and the US. Rubik's are as serious about analytics as they are about their pinball. True story, they have like 10 pinball machines in their Melbourne head office. If you're interested in joining a passionate and vibrant team who make work fun, head to wearerubix.com and get in touch today. That's wearerubix, all one word, wearerubix.com and get in touch today. That brings this episode to conclusion. Thank you so much for listening. Please find us on datafuturology.com or on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn or Instagram as datafuturology. Also go to datafuturology.com forward slash podcast to find the show notes for this and any other episodes. If you like this episode, it would mean a lot to us if you could leave us a review wherever you listen to our podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that it was helpful and valuable for you. Thanks again and see you next time.